0: Awesome. Thank you. Wow. We have to start it the same way. He is risen. And you know, because He's risen, everything has changed. Because He's risen, there's hope for the future. Because He's risen, there's life for today. Because He's risen, we can be all that God has created us to be. It's amazing. The resurrection of Jesus is the central event of history. You know, death reigned over everything, and then God himself stepped in, defeating death and putting all of creation back on the pathway to life. Amazing. But when we say the word resurrection, or when you hear the word sort of batted around, what do we really mean by that? Or what do people mean? when they hear the word resurrection, or what comes into people's minds? What comes into your mind when you hear the word resurrection? Now, depending on your background, depending on what some of your experience is, depending on maybe the things you've read or where you've been, different things can come. Because when you listen around to people who are talking about it or saying what they think about it, you realize, oh, I don't think we're saying the same thing. Or, or I think when that person says resurrection, they mean something entirely different than when, what that person says, even if they both are rejecting it. Even Christians who believe in the resurrection, who celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, can be a bit muddled on what they mean when they say resurrection. So today we're going to explore a passage in in the book of Mark. We're just going to keep going. Uh, We as a church have been traveling through the gospel of Mark. We're going to keep going to that this morning. And it's going to be a passage on resurrection. But before we even get into that, let's get some of our terms straight. I think it'll help us. His resurrection. Well, to get to that, let's first examine a few of the misconceptions that people have and kind of get them out of the way. Because depending on where people are at, again, different opinions are held on the resurrection. And that's fine. People can hold different opinions. And, and whatever your opinion is this morning, whether you, you got drugged here this morning because your family, you know, drug you. Drug you? I hope your family's not drugging you. But maybe your family... Physically druggy here this morning. Uh, maybe maybe you're here because uh, you know, hey, it's Easter and, and uh, church really isn't my thing, but I can show up on Easter and celebrate. Maybe maybe this is a, a high point uh, in your life. Maybe maybe you're excited. Maybe you're part of this fellowship. What, wherever you come from, but if you hold different opinions this morning and you're you're really really not sure what you think, I just want to let you know, uh, especially if you're a guest here today, that we're we're the kind of church. If you look around, we're the kind of church that really welcomes people who are exploring questions. People are trying to figure out and are willing to engage, willing to ask, willing to explore, willing to wrestle. That's the kind of community we are. So uh, whatever your opinion is on the resurrection, on frankly anything at all this morning, uh, you're welcome, and we're we're thrilled that you're here. But in order to discuss things helpfully, I want to walk through a few things. So according to the historical Christian faith and and what the Bible teaches, here are four things the resurrection is, hear me, not. Okay? The first thing, and you do hear this, so... When we talk to people, the first thing is the resurrection. According to the Bible, according to the Christian faith, is not reincarnation. So, reincarnation, of course, is believed by a lot of people. Is it Uncle Fred? I don't. I'm not sure. Um, I, I, I'm not trying to mock that. I'm, I'm not. Forgive me. I'm not trying to mock people who believe in, in reincarnation. But but uh, but I like the picture anyway. Uh, so. But just to make things clear, um, that's a belief that many, many people hold. Reincarnation being reincarnated again. But that's not what is meant by resurrection. That's the point I'm trying to make this morning. I'm, trying to, I'm not try, trying to argue in any way about that. Just to say, when people say resurrection, or when Christians say resurrection, they don't mean reincarnation. That is not what they're talking about. The idea of being, you know, coming back again, uh, it's kind of an, a, a cycle of return, whether it's in another body, or animal, or even in the eyes kids, um, that's not the resurrection that, that we're reading about in Scripture. It's not the resurrection that's being celebrated here on, on Easter Sunday. So that's the first one. Second, is resurrection not flying away somewhere to heaven, to some kind of heaven when we die? This is a common misunderstanding that Christians often carry. The idea that resurrection is really about going away to some other place, to some faraway heaven when we die, and that's the end of the story. Nothing could be further from the biblical truth. And this is one of the reasons why I'm tipping my cards today. This is something I do not do very often. tipping my cards today. I'm going to offend some of you right now. Are you ready? Now, those of you who are guests and aren't too familiar with the church thing, you're not going to be offended by this. But some of those who kind of call church home, we're treading on very thin ice right now. Because I despise the song, I'll Fly Away. I despise it. Okay? And here's why. I'll fly away speaks of flying away to a home on God's celestial shore after we've flown like like a bird from prison bars, referring directly to the human body to a land where joy shall never end. The whole idea encapsulated in that song and sometimes popular through Christian history is 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 um, and has been popular all. All along is actually rooted in the ancient Greek philosophy that this world, that the matter we see, that the, that the created order, including and maybe especially our bodies, are actually evil. And there's nothing that can be done about it. It's, it's evil. And God has sort of given up creation for loss. And, and, and that God's intention is to rip us out of here, rip us even out of our bodies, so that we can live somewhere else as disembodied spirits. Sort of cue the harps and get the clouds ready. You know what I'm saying? But that's not what the Bible teaches about resurrection. It's not what Christians have professed for 2,000 years. As the Apostles' Creed states, we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And I know I've just offended some of you because you love that song. And the song does feel good. I get it. Every bluegrass band in the world does an awesome job of it. It's just its dead wrong. That's my opinion. So, moving on. Okay, so that's one. eh. The resurrection is also not a metaphor for spiritual enlightenment. This has become a common way that some people have talked about resurrection. It's even popular among some people that profess the Christian faith. This suggests that resurrection, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, our own resurrection, is not meant to be taken literally, like a real body coming back to life. They rather say that resurrection as a story, is kind of mythical, it points metaphorically to our need to be more enlightened, to understand uh, love more, to attain a higher level of spirituality. And this opinion is is usually rooted in a rejection of the authority of of Scripture, and it's it's also rooted in an unthinking acceptance that experimental science, test tube science, is the only way to really determine what's, what's true. It sounds very spiritual. It sounds very nice. In fact, what, uh, um, friends believe this, uh, what they say about life often lines up morality wise about being kind, about being loving, about serving one another, about not, not doing violence to one another. So, on that level, it, it sounds really Christian. It sounds, uh, really good. But it's so far from what the Bible teaches or what the Christian faith professes that it's not even right to call it resurrection anymore. And, and what's more, in this line of thinking, When you die, you're either dead and gone like a dog in the ditch, or you are floating away in some disembodied, less than human state kind of as a a spirit somewhere. Now, again, it's not what the Bible teaches about resurrection. The last one I'm going to focus on is uh, also popular. that The resurrection is an elaborate hoax cooked up by early followers of Jesus and then perpetuated as a way of controlling the faithful by this promise of some kind of future eternal life. It's not a And I think it's a rarely thought-through assumption that Jesus' followers somehow stole the body, set it all up, concocted a plan, sold it out. But there's so many problems with this idea. We don't have time to get into it this morning. But the primary one would be these eyewitness documents we have. If people actually go in and study it and look at it, these four amazing stories that stack up the historical evidence for the resurrection, it's amazing. And another historical problem is this. That in the day of Jesus... There were people who believed in a future resurrection. No one, nobody believed that God would somehow raise someone right in the middle of history like he did with Jesus. No one was expecting it. Even when Jesus talked about resurrection, his own resurrection, they assumed, every single one of them assumed, he's talking about some way, way future date when this happened. Nobody was looking for this to happen. When these disciples saw Jesus die, they admitted defeat. They were in no shape to concoct some plan about the resurrection. They believed that what Jesus had said was obviously proven false by his ignominious death. They didn't dream it up. When he rose again from the dead, they were as stunned as everybody. And as you read the story, you'll see that they also needed to see the proof in order to believe it. Well, those are, those are, just so our terms are clear, those are the four things that resurrection is not. It's not reincarnation here. It's not flying away somewhere. It's not attaining enlightenment now. And it's not some elaborate hoax that was cooked up back then. But what is resurrection then? What are we talking about when we read about it, when we celebrate it, when when we're even thinking about resurrection or at least understanding what the Bible says about it? Very simply, resurrection is this. It's the literal physical resurrection of the human body that's transformed and yet is still flesh and blood, but it's been recreated immortal to live life everlasting as a new creation. This is exactly what happened to Jesus, and the promise of Scripture, the promise of God, is that this is what will happen to those who follow Jesus, those who believe. Listen to this from a letter uh, from one of the uh, to one of the early churches. It was written by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. I read a few verses, I only have uh the last of it on the screen. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's part of a much larger, larger argument in First Corinthians 15. He, Jesus, is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Using the image of harvest, that the big harvest is coming when everyone is raised. And Jesus is like the first gleanings of that harvest when he was raised from the dead. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, Jesus. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order in this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Resurrection, true bodily resurrection, is the hope of every Jesus follower. God the Father defeated death by raising His Son Jesus Christ from the dead and then giving us the Holy Spirit to live in us as a guarantee that what He did for Jesus, He's going to do for us. And that's the guarantee that we carry around as the Holy Spirit lives in us is like a deposit saying, yeah, I gotcha, this is your deposit of resurrection. You know that what happened to Jesus is going to happen for you. Well, that was all intro. Have you ever wondered what Jesus Himself said about resurrection, though? I mean, what would Jesus have said if he were talking to his contemporaries about resurrection, even before he had himself had died and rose again? If Jesus was challenged by someone who didn't believe in the resurrection, what would he have said? Well, we have a story today, a rare story, actually, where Jesus does exactly that. Here we are in Easter. We're going to continue following through Mark, where Jesus argues for the resurrection when he's faced down by a number of detractors. As I mentioned already, Many Jews in Jesus' day believed in a literal, physical resurrection when God's kingdom came in fullness, sort of in the end, wiping out the bad guys and restoring the world as he had promised. Martha, you might remember, there was a story where Jesus came and raised Lazarus from the dead, but not in this sense, but resuscitated him, and he lived and then died later. Uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead and, and uh, Martha, his sister, when Jesus asked, she expressed what would be the common faith of the Jewish people in that day when she said she believed that her brother would rise again in the last day. That was, that was what most uh, faithful Jews believed in the time of Jesus. But there was one group in Jesus' day who denied the resurrection altogether. They did not believe in it. Total materialists. They did not think there was anything left after you die. And they weren't some little obscure group with minimal influence. They were actually the ruling class of priests controlling the entire worship and spiritual life of the Jewish nation, a group known as the Sadducees. This group of leaders, they're particularly upset with Jesus because he had just, as we've been traveling through the story, he had just trashed their temple and promised its coming destruction. They do not like this man. And they show up and they want to try to corner Jesus with a question Kind of intending to show how stupid and foolish he is, particularly to believe in the resurrection. That's where we are. So you can read along. Maybe you have a Bible. If you don't, in your in your bulletins there's a insert with the scripture text on today. It's probably the most bizarre scripture text you've ever heard on Easter Sunday, but let's roll with it. <clears throat> Here it is, verse eighteen. Then the Sadducees, that's this is the group we're talking about, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Now we don't. Exactly know why they didn't believe in the resurrection, but we do know that their rejection of the resurrection, or particularly their rejection of any sort of future uh, life, the rejection of the resurrection, really played out in practical ways in their everyday lives. These Sadducees were very, very wealthy, incredibly wealthy, wealth they had made off the backs of people. They were oppressive. They controlled the religion and they were viciously opposed to Jesus. No other uh, single group was more responsible for killing Jesus in the end than these guys right here. And you can see the implications of their theology, if you want to put that You can see the implications of their belief. In their case, their rejection of the resurrection, their rejection of any kind of future justice or judgment or anything, fed or enabled or maybe empowered their daily oppression of others. Because if this life is all there is, then really do whatever you want to get whatever you can. There's no accountability. There's no judgment day. There's no reckoning. I mean, do your best to not, you know, end up getting in trouble later. That really is a downer. But but do your best to set up life so that you can enjoy it. And and if anyone threatens your position or threatens your influence, then eliminate them as soon as possible. That's how these guys lived. So these guys come to Jesus with, it's got to be the weirdest, or one of the weirdest hypothetical questions that you could possibly imagine. And if you're kind of new to the church thing and new to the Bible, and and you're here this morning, I apologize because this is weird stuff, okay? And you're going to read this and think, boy, you're telling me to read the Bible and then it's this kind of stuff in here? It's weird to everyone in the room, okay? It's weird to everyone in the room. So here we are. Here's the story that they come up with to ask Jesus about. Teacher, they said. Moses wrote for us that if a brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And, and, and here it is. What, what it means is the child of that union would, would be like the dead brother's child, legally. It would be a way of continuing on. Okay, So it wouldn't be his child, be the dead brother's child. Got it? And then here's where they get crazy. Now there were seven brothers. First one married, died without having any children. Second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. And they kind of stand back. See how Jesus is going to respond, right? This is not your average coffee break question. Or if it is, you should change jobs. It's a really odd question, right? It's weird. And let's just acknowledge that. And it's even a bit odd in Jesus' day. It's rooted in an ancient command or practice in Moses' law. It had probably fallen into disuse even by Jesus' day. The point of this old law was all about the continuation of the family line. That in order for a family not to die out, Moses commanded brothers to sleep with their brother's widow and they kind of had a special marriage arrangement. It wasn't a normal marriage. And to raise up offspring. So, like I said, it wasn't recognized as normal marriage. The man didn't really need to accept for the responsibility for that woman in a marriage situation after that. It was all about one thing. I know it's weird to us, but it's all about one thing. Family, line, survival. There's huge cultural distances between us and this story. I think even by Jesus' day, there was... Some considerable distance. So don't get caught, caught up in this. These guys are—they're asking this question, but really they're not asking it about the marriage thing. You understand? They're asking it because they want to undercut Jesus' conviction and his belief about resurrection. They're trying to lead Jesus into a conundrum, kind of take him to the logical end of what he believes, in, and say, see, this is impossible. This doesn't work. They think they have Jesus in a corner, sort of up against the ropes. Now, I think it's important to note at this point that their question, like many of the questions of previous stories we've been looking at, they don't come from humble hearts of people who want to learn. They don't even come from skeptical hearts of people that are like, okay, you got to convince me. Because Jesus loves that. And and you might be in that kind of place in your life where you're you're like, I'm so confused by what I'm hearing. I want to find out more. Or I am really not sure that, if you're saying what I think you're saying, I am really not willing to accept that yet, But but I'm willing to keep talking. Jesus loves that kind of thing. We love that kind of thing. That, those kind of questions, that's, that's, that's what community is made of. Jesus responds differently to those kind of questions. But these questions from these guys, they came from people who hated Jesus. Like they wanted to get rid of him. They were trying to trip him up. They were trying to fool him. They, they absolutely rejected who Jesus was and what he was doing. They had heard Jesus' warning of the danger of, of, of judgment that was coming. They knew he was pointing to them and they wanted to intimidate and eliminate Jesus. So Jesus, he goes underneath their hypothetical marriage question to the heart of their real rejection, which was the rejection of the resurrection. Jesus replied, back to the story, verse 24. He replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. And we don't see this at first, but their marriage question, and even what the original intent of that law was trying to address, it was all about the problem of death. How do we overcome? death in this life? And their answer is legacy. That the way to overcome death is by preventing the family line from dying out because, point of fact, everyone dies. And in order for us to continue, we've got to figure out how to overcome death. The problem, hear this right, the problem is death, not marriage. The Sadducees see resurrection as a problem for that, but Jesus responds by saying the resurrection is actually the answer to the problem of death. That God has not come to solve the family line problem, that in the resurrection, the family lines will no longer be relevant, that God is in fact going to solve the death problem, which we all have. And then Jesus roots their resurrection error in two primary areas. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. Let's explore each of those turn. Error number 1. You don't know the scriptures. Now, ha, I love this. That's a pretty audacious claim for a 33-year-old itinerant preacher speaking to who? The people in charge of the entire temple and spiritual, you know, life of the entire nation of Israel. Just think about that for a moment. You don't know your Bible, he says. Well, Jesus is braver than I am. First, he addresses their misunderstanding of of what resurrection life is. They reject it, but even even in their rejection, they have a misunderstanding. He basically says, procreation isn't necessary in the new creation. That's essentially what he says. With death gone... Life, even marriage, will be seen differently than it is now. And we don't have a lot of information on this. Jesus kind of quickly addresses their misunderstanding of marriage before moving on to the main issue, so we need to be careful not to read too much into it. But in short, marriage, and particularly the way the Sadducees were seeing marriage as a way of ensuring ongoing generations, will no longer hold in the resurrection. As resurrected people, we'll be part of one everlasting, immortal generation, no longer subject to the cycle of birth, death, birth, death. But then, after quickly dealing with their misunderstanding regarding marriage, Jesus goes in for the real problem, their rejection of the resurrection, because that's really what this is all about. Jesus takes them to their own scriptures, because um, some people don't know this, but the Sadducees, they actually were really conservative. Like today, we might think, oh, someone that rejects the resurrection might be, may, might be more in the liberal ca- category, some people would say. But in this case, it's because they're so conservative that they reject the resurrection. They're so conservative that they only believe that the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they only think those five have authority, that those five, they're the big five, and all the rest is just a tack on, and they don't think it has weight. So those first five are what is the authority to these guys. Jesus takes them to their scripture and points them to one of the most famous passages in the Bible which some of us, maybe all of us have heard in some way or another. It's the story of Moses long after he left Egypt. He's out in the, you know, the hills taking care of sheep and he has this experience where God reveals himself to Moses through a burning bush and then commissions Moses to go and through God's power, bring uh, his people, Israel, out of Egypt, out of slavery, and bring them to the land that he had promised them. But before God does that, before he commissions Moses, he identifies himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, who were three of Moses' great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers, the patriarchs of the, the, the people of Israel, Israel being another name for Jacob, the third guy in the line. And so, he's talking about his long-dead patriarchs, his long-dead grandfathers. I am the God of them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus' point in this story is quite simple. That God is. Not God was, or not that God used to be, or I'm the God that used to be worshipped by these guys, but that God is, present tense, the God of these dead patriarchs. Which means, Jesus is arguing, that in some way, these guys are still alive. They haven't simply passed on into non-existence, which is what the Sadducees believed. And and before you see this as an argument for some sort of disembodied spiritual state, watch what Jesus does with this story. He uses the fact that there are dead ones who are still alive as an argument for the future resurrection that's coming. That's what Jesus does in this argument. He says, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive in God and are waiting, along with millions of others, for the resurrection that is going to come. You're badly mistaken, Jesus says. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. The resurrection is coming, and it gives us hope for the dead as well as the living. Well, how does that make a difference for us? Let's, let's make it personal for a moment. Where are you at with the resurrection story? Even as you sit here this morning, like, where do you sit in terms of this whole resurrection claim? If you're here today and you're not sure what you think of the resurrection, I want to encourage you. I want to even challenge you. Don't ignore it. Don't kind of think, yeah, I know a Christian said this weird thing about resurrection. I'm not even sure. I think it's reincarnation, frankly. I'm not even sure what it is. Don't don't ignore it. Don't set it to the side. But take it, as an invitation or a challenge from Jesus to get to know the story, to research things out. The resurrection of Jesus and the promise of resurrection to come forms the central plot of all history. And if it's true, then you owe it to yourself to figure it out. And then after you've looked at all the facts and you've read the story and you've, you've heard stories of people who've grappled with it, then you can decide for yourself. But don't reject it or ignore it or just kind of walk by it. Because you've never taken the time. You've never focused your efforts. You've never actually took it out and looked at it carefully enough. Here it is. If you've spent more time researching your education, researching your trade, or maybe even just your next car purchase, if you spent more time looking through Pinterest for wedding dresses... Sorry, Christy. Um, or, Or... researching how to grow tomato plants or cook an Italian meal. If you've spent more time on those things than you've spent researching the truth of the resurrection, may I suggest you rearrange, at least for a season, your priorities and figure this out. Because it's way more important than that stuff. As important as that stuff really is. There was a beautiful wedding dress here right yesterday. Yeah. And a bride and a groom. with with that weather dress. (laughs) If you're wondering where to start, let me give you some suggestions. If you're new to things, there's no better place to start than with the Bible itself. That's what Jesus says. You don't know your story. What he's saying is, get to know the story. So I encourage you, I challenge you, I dare you, to pick up the Bible, ignore the first bit for a bit, go to the New Testament, and it's the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four eyewitness accounts about Jesus' life, birth life, his, what, he, what he did, what he was concerned about, and then his death and his resurrection. Read those stories. And then if you're ready to go next step, take a, take a book like uh, Lee Strobel. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ. Uh, he wrote The Case for uh, the Resurrection. There's, he was an atheist. He worked for the Chicago Tribune as a, as a, a, a legal investigator. And, and he, was, he started kind of connecting to a church. He wasn't sure what was going on. And he absolutely was against what was being taught there. But he started going because his wife wanted him to. And and so he was going and and then over time he decided, you know what? He took up the challenge. I'm gonna research this. I'm gonna figure this out because apparently this is important. So at least I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna bring my investigative, my legal mind to this, and I'm gonna at least have done with this. I think he thought he was gonna prove it wrong. So he researched it out and came to trust and believe that, yeah, not only is this story true, but Jesus is alive, and I want to follow him. It's an amazing story, so I encourage you to get that out, challenge it, yourself with that. If you are a Jesus follower, maybe you're maybe you're new to following Jesus, you're not too sure what you think about it, I too encourage you to go to the Gospels. I maybe would encourage you also to take um, that letter I read earlier, a piece from it, for 1 Corinthians 15, to read that chapter and explore it a bit. For those of you who are ready for a bit more of a challenge, or maybe for those of you who are super offended by my I'll fly away rejection, i want to i want to suggest a book for you i don't do this very often those of you who know here i do not drag books out and you know push them down your throat very often but here we go it's a book by tom wright called surprised by hope and it's all about the resurrection and the, the challenge and the connection to our life now and then of course how we think about the resurrection to come it's very challenging very inspiring And I challenge you, if you're a follower of Jesus, especially if you're a little further on in that journey, pick up that book by Tom Wright and dig it in. Get to know the story. That's the point. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? Error number two is you don't know God's power, he says to them. It's also another audacious claim to these central religious leaders of his day. Because by saying you don't know God's power, it's like he's saying you actually don't know who God is. Like you do not have any idea who God is. Wow, that's crazy stuff. They, They did kill him shortly after he said this, by the way. So, no wonder they hated him. But let's get this straight. The reason why they don't know the power of God, the reason why they don't know who God is, it's actually linked to the error that he's already stated. It's linked to their ignorance of God's word because it's through the scriptures, it's through the Bible that we come to understand who God is. We we see how God works. We see what God cares about. We come to understand where history is going. We we come to understand why creation matters to God, people and planet, why it matters and where he's taking it all, what life is all about. And we learn that through this story, through the scriptures that are given to us. To these religious leaders, Jesus is saying, you don't know God's power. You don't know who God is. And he's saying, you know, even if you only read... Again, that's for these guys. Even if you only read the first five books of the Old Testament, you would see God's power demonstrated. His power is front and center. This is the God who called creation into existence. The stars, the earth, the planets, the people, all created by God for the purpose of life and freedom and potentiality. And he did it out of nothing. I mean, seriously, do you think death is a problem for this God? This is the God who saw the earth begin to descend into chaos as humans rejected God's plan and and eventually he sort of seemed like God was going to give up and he brought this shattering judgment because of the violence, because of the rebellion, because of the awful way people were treating each other and it was terrible, but he didn't. He instead brought new life out of the death and out of the chaos as he brought Noah and his family through. And he asked the question, essentially, do you think death is a problem for this God? But more than any other story, it was the Exodus story itself. The Exodus out of Egypt for God's people. This story where God's power was demonstrated to the world, to the most powerful kingdom known in history at that time. Where God's power was shown as he toppled the king as He destroyed false gods, as He as he exercised power over all of creation, the power over life and death itself, the power to bring a people who had been enslaved for hundreds of years out of slavery and into a promised land. This is the power of God. Do you seriously think death is a problem for Him? But here it is, at the end of that fifth book, Deuteronomy, the question of death still remains unanswered. God's power is seen through and through, and yet death still reigns. The, the promise, the solution, still hasn't come. But Jesus even here says to these Sadducees, you know, if you would just read your own story carefully enough, you would see that the power of God points us toward life. And then he even, in that story, reveals to them the indications that even within their own story, that God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Do you think God is too powerless to defeat death? Now, Jesus knows what's coming, of course, right? He's already spoken a number of times right here in the Gospel of Mark of his coming suffering and, and the way people are going to reject him and the fact that he was going to die and on the third day be risen again from the dead. So he's spoken of, of this. People didn't understand it, they didn't get it. Even his closest followers were like, I don't know what you're talking about. But he spoke of it. That though God's power was demonstrated through the Exodus and all through the story and through creation itself on that Easter morning, God's power would be fully revealed like it had never been revealed before as He raised Jesus Christ From the dead, not simply resuscitating him, but utterly transforming him into a, into a new creation where his body was, was the same. There was holes in his hands and he could, after a while, at least people could recognize him and he could eat. He had a body, but it was something completely new, completely different as well. An immortal physical body now for the rest of all time. Jesus says, you don't know the power of God. And I think there might be even a hint in there to say, but you wait and see. You just wait and see, buddy. You're going to see the power of God. And I think in this challenge where he says, you don't know the power of God, that's where we hear an invitation. We hear the invitation to us now here on Easter morning. Wherever we're at, maybe we're discouraged in life. Maybe we have family tension. Maybe we're maybe we're super uh, discouraged because there's been a job transition and we're not sure what's ahead. Maybe we've been wrestling with, with, uh, you know, physical illness or mental illness. Maybe, maybe, I don't know what it is that might be discouraging you or holding you down. And you think, God, I want to know your power. And you hear in this invitation uh, to come and to experience God's power, His resurrection power in your life. Maybe you're completely disengaged. Maybe you say, I don't think any of this matters. I just want to go on living my life. But even in this, we hear an invitation. Are you willing to step in close enough? Are you willing to take up the dare? to get close enough to this story, to get close enough to God, to begin to at least taste, to begin to try it out, to begin to see if this power of God really is something that could transform your life and your purpose, that could take you out of a self-centered existence that said, my life is really just all about me and my family and the things we enjoy, and pull you into a purpose that's far greater than anything you could ever imagine. Do you know the power of God? That's the invitation that Jesus gives to us today. To come to know this God who looked death in the face, who stared down evil, who looks at the hopelessness of our world and says, no, I will not let it continue. I will not let evil have the final say. I will not let death win. And his solution was to come and be one of us, to take on flesh And to live a life among us demonstrating the whole new way that God wants us to be and live and all the life and goodness that God wants us to experience to live that way and then to die in our place as one of us offering back to God everything we couldn't offer and then turning around and offering to us everything that we couldn't get. And then on the third day rising again from the dead. It's like God took death in His hands and He snapped it in half and then He just threw it in the trash heap as yesterday's news. And He turns around and He offers all all of us life and freedom and resurrection. He says, look at me. Do you see what's happened to me? Do you see the power of God to raise me from the dead. That's the same power God is promising to you if you will just come in close. If you will just come to Jesus and and say, Jesus, I want to know your power. I want to follow you. I want to explore what you have for us. Maybe that next step is just to to read the story because you're really not sure yet. But the invitation is there to get to know the story, to get to know his power, the power of his resurrection love that looks into your eyes, into my heart, into your situation, into your a family story, and says, I can bring life there. I can bring freedom to you. Death is not a problem for this God. You understand that? Because He's the God of the living, not the dead. And here on this Easter Sunday, that is what we celebrate. We celebrate this God, who is the God of the living. The God of all history and time. The God who defeated death and offers us his story and his power for the taking. That's what we celebrate on this Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. Amen. Amen.